Hello, welcome to the Innovation and Diffusion podcast. I am Raveda Gozan, a research economist at the Program on Innovation and Diffusion at the London School of Economics. And today, I am so excited to be with two renowned economists, Ufuk Akci, who is the Arnold Harberger Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago, and John Manrinen, who is Ronald Koss School Professor at the London School of Economics and Digital Fellow at MIT. Welcome, both of you. Great to be here. I'm here all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. It's a great pleasure for us, too. So just to let our audience know, we were able to catch a book in London, so we're recording this episode in person. And the reason why I emphasize this is because I know you travel a lot. One day you're in Turkey, the other day you're in London, the other day you're in the US. I really want to ask, like, before we dive into the questions on research, like, where do you find this energy? Do you have a secret? <laughs> well, I, I learned from the best, and one of them is in the room right now. Obviously, part of our job is to do research, but an important part of our job is also to dis disseminate our findings and, and explain our findings to broader audience. Uh, but at the same time, when you travel, you get to meet some interesting people that you would otherwise not meet in your office. And uh, indeed, uh, you know, thinking back, several of my papers got initiated through those travels. I bump into some people. I remember one time some folks were dropping me off at the train station and they just asked me to have a quick uh, bite before I leave. And we sit at this uh, restaurant at the train station and, and we start chatting about research and suddenly a project started and uh, it, it ended up being one of the most exciting research projects I, I worked on. So indeed, now we have to also talk about Lucas, of course. But uh, Lucas is uh, one of the most renowned and, and I think most influential models were, were these uh, growth through learning from others and bumping into others and learning from others. And obviously, you know, those theories are coming from real life. And I'm, I, I feel like I'm in the middle of, uh, of a Lucas model. <laughs> so then socializing actually has really positive spillovers in that sense. hundred <laughs> percent. That's 100%. great. All right. So let's get started. To inform our listeners, Ufuk and John are going to publish a book called Economics of Creative Destruction in this fall. So congratulations for your book. And I'm very excited about it because as far as I know, the book is compiled of chapters focusing on different aspects of innovation, like such as competition, political connections, green economy, lobbying, taxation, and even more. So before I go into what this book tells us, I want to ask Ufuk, and I want to start with actually some fundamental notions. And in the title, we, I mean, there is creative destruction. We will talk about creative destruction a lot in this episode. So I want to ask what is creative destruction and why is it important? The notion of creative destruction in a very basic sense is the process where the new and the young comes in and replaces the old and unproductive one. And this turnover introduces fresh blood to the system. Uh, this can be at the individual level, this can be at the firm level, this can be even at the system level. You know, if you go back, uh, even Nietzsche and Karl Marx, they were talking about creative destruction and they were even talking about the, the change of the system. And creative destruction is uh, part of our everyday life. And now we are talking very, very loudly in the, in the literature. And I think that that's, some, that's what we should have done long time ago, but I'm very glad that it's uh, picking up uh, much more strongly these days. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Nietzsche, because that's what I was going to talk about, too. Because I remember I was reading Thus Spoke Zarathustra, and then I saw that he mentions like creative destruction in the book. I mean, I was so surprised, because I think I always associated the creative destruction notion with Schumpeter. 
Um, and then I learned it actually actually starts with Nietzsche and then other like economists also mention uh, that concept in their books. So since we talked about the like, creative destruction, maybe we can focus on the evolution of the term. So how did the notion of creative destruction evolve over time in economics? Where were we back then and where are we now theoretically and empirically? Uh, that's an excellent question. Normally, creative destruction is part of everyday life. I mean, just think about ourselves whenever we want to make progress or, you know, when we enter a job market, we are replacing someone else in the job market, right? So there's always a constant turnover and people brought this notion up long time ago. And obviously, as, as we mentioned, sociologists, philo many, many philosophers have already mentioned this uh, concept, but this was very much popularized by Germans and uh, Austrians and uh, uh, Joseph Schumpeter popularized this notion in his 1934 book and then uh, of course this concept was very much uh, discussed in the literature throughout because there are always gatekeepers in any system and to make progress you need to pass by those gatekeepers and it's always very very challenging so that's why in any reading, you always come across the notion of creative destruction one way or another. But then the way it entered into the literature that I'm also working on is through Philip Agion and Peter Howitt's phenomenal contribution in their 1992 paper. So what did they do? What they did is they reinterpreted the growth process. So up until then, there were many, many alternative growth theories. Let's think about the solo model, for instance. The solo model says that you have to grow or you can grow as an economy through capital deepening. You need capital so that you have more machinery so that you can produce more. And this would give you some boost in terms of economic growth for a while. But once you exploit all the possibilities through capital deepening, you run into some diminishing returns. And in the long run, you converge to your steady state and in that steady state to make progress further capital deepening is not necessarily the way to go so capital deepening i think in today's world is a is a great model for very poor countries very when you think about very poor countries they need roads they need in infrastructure they just don't they just don't have the necessary resources to build those so in those economies you can extend financial resources and then they can build additional roads additional infrastructure and then they can grow but for them to make progress now they come to a phase where okay you have your roads that you need you have your infrastructure that you need but to make additional progress now you need technology you need to become more productive with the existing infrastructure you have how are you going to do it now you're going to bring technologies so you're going to bring those technologies from somewhere around the world then you are in this middle income group of countries right again we are going through the development stages of, of, of economies then now you're getting closer to the frontier there are technologies uh, around the world but not necessarily in your country and you absorb those technologies you bring them in then you get closer to the frontier but when you come very close to the frontier now the only way for you to make progress is through innovation so you need to now come up with new technologies that don't exist in the world and don't exist by definition also in your country. Now you need to start innovating. Can I just, but just, I mean, this is just to take one step back before we get into the innovation part of it, which is, 
part of this amazing intellectual history that Ufik is describing. I think that one of the things about creative destruction is that destruction is something people fear. I mean, as soon as you say destruction to politicians or to ordinary people, they get really scared about it. And I think one of the fascinating things about the way that Schumpeter and the other people that you, you know, Agion and Howarth, it's in order to make progress, you have to kind of embrace that. So destruction is not always a negative thing, but can actually be something creative as well, as you're saying, the younger and replacing the old. And I think that goes back to something fascinating in, in, in human history. So this notion that in order to create a new world, you have to kind of replace some of the old world. In fact, again, it goes back, as we were talking about this with Rueda, back to Indian philosophy as well, this idea of the world being destroyed and then recreated. Absolutely, absolutely. So in terms of the history, you're, you're absolutely right. So I was trying to uh, approach the problem from a different angle in the sense that if you can group the countries into three stages, for the very poor countries, capital deepening could be a good growth strategy. For middle-income countries, imitation could be a good strategy. But for frontier countries, innovation should be the way to go. But then the question is, which framework would be the relevant framework for us to think about? And as John mentioned, so there are you know, uh, alternative ones. One of them is the Romer's approach, which is and obviously he won the Nobel Prize for his amazing contribution. His view of the world was we have each technology or each product can be thought about as a different variety that we produce with. And if we want to make progress, we need to add new varieties, new technologies. But these new technologies will not necessarily replace the existing ones, but we will just add cumulatively new products, new technologies. This is a very different way of thinking about economic growth. It's fan fantastic, phenomenal, and it addresses Solow's model, right? Solow's model was saying, in the long run, for us to make progress, it has to be technology. But Solow wasn't talking about where that technology will come from. Whereas Romer was saying that technological progress comes from monopoly incentives of the firm. So there are monopoly rents out there and entrepreneurs will try to grasp those rents and they will come up with the new technologies. And that's why he built the first model where entrepreneurs, new inventors are investing in costly R&D to come up with new technologies. But this was not at the expense of existing ones. They were just adding new varieties. What's the main limitation? There are two main limitations to this approach. One, there is no turnover. There's no tension. Growth doesn't come with any tension. And John very rightly mentioned this uh, important tension between incumbents and entrants, but in the Romer model, there was no tension. Everything was rosy, everything was great, right? And the problem is that every innovation was coming with a spillover that was not internalized by the initial entrepreneur. So as a result, the optimal government policy is to subsidize R&D no matter what. So both from a positive point of view and from a normative point of view, it had some limitations. So from a positive point of view, it didn't have this realistic tension that we face in everyday life. And from a normative point of view, it didn't have this notion that sometimes because of our competitive instincts, we might be over-investing in resources. Maybe we are over-rushing, spending too much time to get into the tube because tube has just limited spots and we are all spending our time and only a limited number of people are able to get into the tube and the rest 
are just waiting there and, and wasting their time because of these coordination failures, right? And or because of this competitive nature, winner takes all type of approach. Maybe we are exerting too much effort. And John obviously, you know, has uh, uh, written so many papers on the role of competition on innovation. It could be that we might be uh, investing uh, too much, but Romer's model wasn't speaking to this normative side of things either. But just, I mean, so just, just to, again, just to take a step back for some of the, the listeners, the, the advantage of Romer, as you said, just reiterating what Ufik said, over what Robert Solo, another Nobel Prize winner, former colleague at MIT, had is that rather than just taking growth as something out there, exogenous, manna from heaven, it actually made it in the jargon endogenous, a conscious choice of investing in research and development. So that opened up the space for government policies to change the pace of technological change. And it also put at the center this idea of, of, of uh, knowledge spillovers. So the idea that we, we, as we were talking about before, we bump into each other and get ideas. By the way, we're actually in Philippe Aguillon's office right now doing the podcast. <laughs> so this is a great example. I felt it. I yeah. felt it. There was something in this room. And, and yeah, my office is just down there. So we bump into each so, other. So, so that was, your, as, 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 as Ufik said, of course, it had those disadvantages that you said it didn't have, you know, there was no um, creative tension. Exactly. Which is, uh, I think, uh, is, uh, really important with competition. Sorry, just to... No, this was, this was absolutely fantastic. And now let's combine everything that we've discussed so far. We talked about bumping into each other and we talked about the lack of tension. So then comes Peter's, uh, Peter Howitt's visit to MIT. Uh, he was at uh, Western Ontario as an uh, assistant professor and he was visiting MIT. And just the way Jonathan just described his interaction with Philip. So Peter also bumps into Philip at MIT, and uh, so they start talking about research. They and he talk from door to door. <laughs> I think that from office to office. With Philip, is where he's shouting. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and the funny thing is, but that's 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 where you see also another important notion uh, about the research. So it's about combining ideas, right? Peter Howitt originally was a monetary economist, so his. Or initial research was on monetary economics and Philippe was on contract theory and I.O. As you can see, this was a great marriage between the two and they came together and brought these I.O. aspects into macroeconomy by building this uh, very uh, nice model of creative destruction in their 92 paper. And the logic was very simple. The logic was the economy was a single sector e economy. And they said, if we want to keep track of the productivity in a sector, we need to understand who is introducing these technologies and what's the consequence of introduction of this new technology. And their observation was that whenever somebody comes in, the incumbent has to be out. And this turnover brought, we might think that it's, it's a simple way of modeling economic growth, but it's so rich that it opened up so many different directions so that we ended up writing this or, or editing this phenomenal book with John. 30 years later, now we see this huge uh, explosion in the literature, which takes this notion of creative destruction and uh, introduces into labor markets, international trade, public finance, and uh, in many different uh, directions. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question. Like, I can also ask John, uh, Ufuk also, I mean, answer it in a way. So what does this book offer us uh, in terms of understanding uh, creative destruction or innovation? Why should we read it, actually? <laughs> <laughs> you should definitely read it. Um, I mean, I, I think it gives you an idea about frontier research across all these type of areas. And as, as Ufuk said, it just illustrates how the Aguillon-Howitt framework 
opened up. It was like a kind of breath of fresh air and opened up so many different areas that we could investigate. Particularly, you know, when I first started working with, with Philippe Aguillon on this, the existing literature was very macroeconomic focused. It was just looking at what's happening at the country level. And when, once you start thinking about creative destruction, as Ufuk described it, you think about, you know, as firms replacing other firms, as some inventors coming in, other inventors coming out, it enables you to use microeconomic data, so information on individual firms and individual inventors. And that just meant that this flourishing of data, which we've, you know, we, we live in this golden age of data over the last 20 or 30 years, where we can actually not just look at the whole economy's productivity innovation, but at the productivity innovation of individual firms and individual workers. We can use that to answer many of these questions across a whole range of fields from finance to political economy to you know, industrial organization and labor, which you know, the, the older literature didn't really speak to. So I think you know, if you're interested in all of the way that social science is developing, you can really get an insight into this from the different lenses and the different chapters of the book. At the end of the day, an economy is a collection of many different aspects, right? Think of it like a, a car with four tires. And the goal here is to understand how a car can go and can go fast. And if the car goes fast, we know that they all have the common feature. In all these economies that are really growing fast, there's one common feature. They are very similar to each other. Everything functions very well. But if an economy doesn't work well, then the economies start to differ in many different dimensions. Because in some cars, the right front tire is broken. In some cars, the back left tire is broken. Or in some economies, all tires are broken. So now, it, of course, it's a, it's, it's a worrying situation for those economies for but for uh, for for those economies but for researchers like us this opens up a very interesting direction for research why do these economies fail and if you want to understand why these economies fail you need to really take a comprehensive approach you can't just focus on one dimension and try to think about industrial policy and then say hey you know what what we need in india is to subsidize r&d well, guess what? If you subsidize R&D in India, believe me, you're not going to get the same return that you would get in another economy like the UK economy or French economy or the US economy. Why? Because there are other problems in India and there are picking order of problems. And, uh, you know, the, again, uh, there were some very interesting paper by Nick Bloom and, and, and David McKinsey and co-authors that showed that one of the best predictor of firm size in India is the size of the family or the number of male children. So clearly there is something else is broken in that economy. And it's not the lack of R&D subsidy by the government that's lacking in that economy. There's something else. So once you start thinking and, and reasoning through this, it's clear that if you want to understand an economy, you have to investigate an economy from different angles. And that's a little bit what this book is also doing, trying to reason or trying to think about creative destruction from many different angles. It could be, again, the political economy might be the problem. It could be the labor markets, maybe the supply side of, 
of inventors could be the problem or maybe the demand on the firm side for those inventors could be the problem because of lack of competition etc so we are trying to bring all these different aspects uh, together in that book so that's why you know i think it's very exciting uh, I'm sure it's not the best bedtime reading, but uh, hopefully <laughs> during the day with a big uh, pot of coffee, it would be a great read. I think it's less a coffee table book than a coffee table. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, one thing, I mean, one there's a fantastic chapter that Ufuk wrote, which was kind of summarizing as he's done a bit now on what Agion Howe was about. And one of the things in that chapter and one of the things I've taken from your work is that these two notions of innovation the innovation pushing the frontier, but also the more defensive type of innovation. Do you want to talk a bit more about that? Because I think that's a kind of fundamental distinction which you brought out in lots yeah, of your work. Absolutely, John. This is this this. I think this is a very important point. One mistake that uh, policymakers typically make is looking at the aggregate numbers, and uh, sometimes just a you know single aggregate number could be a good indicator of how an economy is performing or how the resources are being utilized. For instance, if you think about, for instance, R&D to GDP ratio. This is a, a number that we very much like to see higher and higher and higher. And over time, R&D to GDP ratio went up. If you look at the US economy, it went up. If you look at, uh, uh, you know, across countries, some countries are investing more relative to their GDP than others. but we don't see a necessarily a very strong association between R&D to GDP ratio and the performance of the economy. Why? The basic theory, be it the Romer model or the Agyon-Havit model, the basic theories would tell us that if you spend more resources into R&D, you should grow faster. But we don't have a very strong uh, evidence on this, at least uniformly uh, uh, around the world. Why? Because it's not only the level, but it's also the composition that matters. But if you think through the lens of the Schumpeterian theory, this should come as no surprise, right? Because the Schumpeterian theory says that entrants and incumbents have completely different incentives, right? So for instance, and for an entrant to make a change or to make money, they have to introduce something radical to the market and prove themselves to the customer, attract the attention of the customer. That's their, that's their goal. But for an incumbent, there are at least two ways to make money. One, yes, they are going to react positively to the entrant pressure, the way, for instance, again, the China pressure on the UK economy, right, uh, as, as John and companies have shown. Or an alternative strategy would be if there is competitive pressure uh, from entrants, incumbents can also rely on some strategic uh, investments. In that case, they can start investing in defensive R&D. We talk about patents and R&D, but not every patent and not every R&D is pushing the technology frontier forward. Sometimes what companies do is they have a crown technology and then they try to patent every single extension of it. And they are spending a lot of resources just to uh, create a patent thicket around it. And as a result, it becomes extremely hard for the following firm to leapfrog the leader. And all this taxpayer's money in that case was being used to build a wall so that the followers cannot leapfrog the leader. So once you start thinking about this different tension between incumbents and entrants, suddenly you, you realize, you know what? Maybe incumbents are not necessarily using all their resources into innovative things. And this could be uh, through a patent ticket, 
but this could also be due to uh, other strategies. For instance, in a recent work with uh, uh, Francesca Lotti and uh, Salome Baslanze, what we did is we looked at the we looked at the incumbent strategies in terms of getting connected to the system. And in that paper, what we did was we merged the social security records of the Italian workers with the register of local politicians, more than 500,000 local politicians. And these local politicians are mayors, vice mayors, council members, you name it. And then we asked a very simple question. If a firm is becoming the dominant market leader, do they become more innovative? or do they do something else? The answer is the latter, unfortunately. As the firms are becoming the dominant market leader, their innovation intensity is going down, but the number of politicians, local politicians that they hire relative to their size is going up very, very significantly, which suggests that indeed the incumbent firms incentive to protect their market through their political ties is just increasing. Yeah, that comes to a point I, I wanted to ask, for instance, like how does market power affect innovation dynamism? Because it seems like then if this is the case and the business dynamism is actually falling or decreasing. And another idea that I was thinking was that, like, for instance, think about Amazon or like um, or Microsoft or those big companies. Actually, they can be more efficient, right? Because in terms of management practices or they can create positive spillovers, they can bring successful scientists together. Like I have Ufuk, let me combine it with John, let me combine it with Philippe. And then, you know, you can combine all these uh, like brilliant, you know, scientists and people and then maybe create even more innovation. But then that is not what we see in the data. You're, 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 you're uh, touching upon a very sensitive issue. And I, I have the feeling that people are a little bit confused about this. So market power is, it's, it could be also a result of successful innovations. And most of the time it is, right? But seeing a rise in market concentration has different implications on the economy. First, we need to understand the cause and we need to understand the implication. So there's this symbiotic relationship between market power and innovation. And if it's managed right by the policymakers, this can be very healthy. And it has to be. It has to be. Because the very basic premise of R&D and innovation is that there has to be some monopoly rents on the table. Otherwise, firms are not going to invest in costly R&D. Right? That's the, that's the basic premise. So in that case, we have to be tolerant to certain degree of monopoly rents and market power. But how much? Right. That's the big question and how to keep things under control. And that's really the art of policymaking. And that's where, you know, many countries fail. So there has been very uh, exciting lines of work about understanding the, the rise in uh, market power in the U.S. economy. And uh, again, John and his co-authors have shown that there is a rise of superstar firms and in, in the U.S. and if it's because of the superstar firm's uh, innovative investments, that's a result of what we promised them. Then the question is, that's backward looking. Let me make one backward looking and one forward looking observation here. Today, we see a rise in market concentration. One important question is why? So now we have to make a backward looking observation. Is it due to successful uh, uh, investment of innovative firms or is it due to rent sinking? Mm -hmm. In many developing countries, the rise in market power is due to rent seeking because the political, the, because the, the, the political system is not working well, 
the legal system is not working well as a result firms are gaining market power and that's a very toxic market power right this has to be eliminated but if the market power is increasing because of some past success then destroying that market power in a dynamic sense could be very dangerous because in that case what you're effectively doing is you're imposing a very strong success tax and that's very much against of what we are arguing right so we want to reward uh, success not tax it but at the same time now let me make a one forward-looking observation okay now the market power has gone up what are we going to do next that's that's another challenging question because yes uh, I might have gained some market power due to success but will I keep innovating the answer is not necessarily indeed there are some very interesting theoretical models in the literature uh, you know the 92 paper was uh, was a very important paper obviously but the literature has evolved uh, drastically over the past 30 years and uh, uh, again Philippe and Peter and their co-authors have also contributed to this second line of work which is we have to think about competition in a strategic term so if John and I if we are neck and neck in a market our incentive to invest in R&D will be very high but if John is very far ahead of me and now I'm very far behind probably I will get discouraged and I won't be investing in R&D as much because John is dominating the market and I'm very far behind so I have no hope of, of, of getting any return to my investment so I'm going to give up when there's no pressure on John John will say hey I'm already alone in the market why should I bother and invest in R&D right so as a result this relative position of the competitors in the market is very important for the future of the economy so that's why what we need to do is of course we need to reward those firms that are coming up with their technologies and gaining market power but then the next question is or the next strategy for a policymaker should be to diffuse those technologies in the economy if those technologies that are invented by the market leaders can get diffused in that case the leaders and the followers won't get uh, too far apart from each other and we will keep the innovation still intense uh, but if those technologies don't get diffused then the market concentration will go up and then the past success of the economy will become a toxic situation and unfortunately our research with Sinatesh from Federal Reserve has shown that probably that's also where we are heading in the US economy you know the 80s and 90s have shown massive success in the US economy superstar firms uh, introduce great technologies but from today's point of view the market concentration has gone up so much and the technologies are getting so much concentrated within the firm it doesn't get diffused as a result in, in terms of you know what's going to happen in the future we don't see a very promising uh, picture. It, it's such an important point, this, because and it, and it plays into all these policy debates we're having over you know, what's the right form of competition policy towards these superstar firms like Apple and Microsoft and Amazon and so on. Because exactly as Ufik said, even if they got to their position you know, entirely through innovation on the merits, they can be, there's many things they can do, and they often have incentives to do, to weaken the ability of new entrants to come in or rivals to come in and compete against them. And doing that, and it may be through reducing the ability to diffuse their ideas or other ways, taking them over, for example, um, can be actually very harmful. So getting that balance right, I love the phrase, the art of policy making, and thinking of how we can recraft our policies, competition policies, 
regulatory policies, the other kind of policies we have, to make sure that potential rivals, potential incumbents can compete is really important. It's probably one of the most important questions facing policymakers. So just to add uh, on, on John's point, there are many different ways of controlling these. Indeed, as we discussed earlier, you know, it could be uh, because of the product market competition or it could also be in the input market competition. And uh, again, uh, with uh, Nathan Goldschlag from Census Bureau, we, we released a paper uh, a couple weeks ago where we, sh where we show that the US market leaders are hiring inventors from other small and young firms. And what's really interesting is that when an inventor moves to a large incumbent rather than to a small young firm, the compensation of that inventor goes up dramatically. And this should be no surprise. And this doesn't say it's a good news or bad news because it's a good news if this person is being rewarded for being more productive in a large incumbent, right? So it might be good for the society. Maybe there is a, a improvement in the allocation of innovative resources, but it's the opposite, unfortunately. When an in inventor moves to a large incumbent, the innovativeness of the same person goes down dra drastically. Again, combine this with the political connection paper and, and, and look at this strategic uh, you know, uh, hiring dynamics. This is showing us that incumbents and the followers and the leaders competition in a market can be shaped in many different ways. And that's why there's you know, just one size fits all type of approach or there's just one type of you know, silver bullet that will fix all the problems. It's really not like that. It's really complicated as, as, as John mentioned. So we have to take a, a, a more comprehensive approach uh, when it comes to uh, competition policy and think very carefully what are the tools through which or what are the uh, what are the directions that these companies are trying to go and we should not necessarily discourage firms that are going to uh, produce better technologies uh, and, and more innovations but we have to be also very very careful in terms of how innovative resources are being used in the economy we should not make the distribution or allocation of innovative resources uh, worse over time. I mean, just on, on that, it's a really fascinating point. I, I, I saw some early version of this paper. It's great to see it's come out. But, you know, in many countries and, and in the US, there are these non-compete clauses, which means if you had an a, a innovative inventor in a, in a large firm and they wanted to move and potentially work in a smaller firm, they would, it would be illegal or it wouldn't be, they wouldn't be allowed to do it because of the contract. So these kind of non-competes uh, actually could be a way of restricting that mobility of inventors and potentially is also harmful. There's actually a you know, proposal by the US administration to ban non-competes everywhere, like they are in California, for example. And also, I think when since you talked about like the, the toxic environment, there's there are also killer mergers. Startups with brilliant ideas. Then, like if you're the incumbent, if you're the big company, and then you can buy off this company, and then you can just kill that innovative off, right? Absolutely, but this also uh, suggests that not only the firms have to be dynamic, but also uh, the policy institutions should also be dynamic. For instance, competition authorities. Why are these killer acquisitions not being identified because most of the time these buyouts are happening at a very early stage and the, the, the amount of the transaction is so low that it doesn't get uh, into the radar of the, of the competition authorities. So that's why 
many of the thing many of these things are happening at a very early stage but today uh, the way we produce or the way firms compete have changed drastically especially with the IT revolution and if you look at the life cycle of manufacturing firms it takes a long time for a firm to grow conditional on survival but when you look at the more IT based sectors or firms you know that are more uh, IT oriented the life cycle the, or the firm size changes drastically just over over the course of a couple of years and uh, this super fast growing firms if they are identified early on they can get killed very easily by by the potential uh, rivals right so that's why i think the competition authorities should also reread the the dynamics of competition they have to be very much on top of real-time data most of the time by the time the you know uh, authorities get the data read the data the game is already over most of those firms are already gone, right? So the dynamic, the, the, the game is changing, evolving very fast. The competition is evolving very fast in, in this day and age. So that's why uh, the, the competition authorities should also go through a creative destruction. And they have to upgrade their approach to reading the market. They have to have a, a good data infrastructure. They have to have a good team of people, economists, who can read the data, give the right messages to authorities, and and that's why uh, we have to we have to also think about uh, not only about the players but also the governing uh, bodies uh, and 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 uh, ask them to change as well. Innovation is important, and knowledge diffusion is probably even more important. Um, so, what are the biggest barriers right now that we're facing? You know, in both developed economies and developing economies, and um, what are the most successful policies in promoting innovation and diffusion? You know, just to summarize, you you mentioned like like bit by bit, you know, uh, but just to summarize, there are there are many, there are many. I think we have to have a, a podcast just uh, on, on that topic <laughs> itself, exactly. But uh, if 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 we start thinking about the developing countries. The notion of innovation is a very foreign concept. And the, especially these days, it's much easier for politicians to sell to their voters the idea of building a bridge or hospital or a school, right? Uh, uh, indeed, school is, is probably the, the best out of this, this list. But, you know, showing them something visible is much more rewarding than you know talking about knowledge talking about r&d talking about productivity what is productivity can you imagine put yourself in the shoes of, of a policymaker and you go in front of people and say you know what we are going to improve our productivity this year you know it's much easier to tell them hey we are going to receive x billion dollars from abroad versus you know what, we are going to become more productive over the next couple of years. And then people will say, what are you talking about? So it's very hard to convey the notion of, of this productivity innovation. So that's a big challenge. And I have the feeling that in, in, in developing countries, we are moving away from this. So rather than seeing a convergence, I think there's a divergence in that. And the populist uh, uh, politicians are pushing more this uh, more tangible capital deepening a type of idea but I think every politician should have the basic training of economic growth because 
they are the ones deciding for the resource, the use of the resources, but they are the ones pushing for the idea of capital deepening. But capital deepening is especially, you know, we know Dutch disease, right? Uh, you know, just having more resources is not the solution. The, the right solution is to use those resources in the most effective way. But how are you going to do it? Now innovation comes in. Another important issue, you mentioned idea diffusion, especially in developing countries again. It's extremely important to learn from the outside world the best practices. It could be in terms of technology, it could be in terms of uh, you know, how to regulate and market, it could be in terms of the management practices. Those best practices should be adopted, should be brought. And in this day and age, it's very, very easy. It's much easier because transportation is easier, communication is easier, it's much easier to follow what's happening around the world. But unfortunately, the politicians are doing the exact opposite. So they are trying to close the borders. They are trying to be local and national, local and national. And they are trying to go against the, the, the idea of getting plugged into the world and, and learning uh, from the rest of the world. And I find this for innovation and technology diffusion, I find this dangerous. And so that's why I'm a little bit worried about what I'm seeing around the world. But hopefully these things are uh, temporary and people will converge to the right mindset in the, in the long run. Uh, in the long run, we are also all dead, but <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully we will converge to the right mindset and, 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 and think about uh, the innovation uh, more in, in more realistic terms. Final questions. I want to ask, so since there will be a lot of like PhD students, like economics PhD students listening to us and early career academics as well. So I want to ask, where is the frontier research right now? And what are the big unresolved questions in innovation field that we need, you know, more answers on? Um, there are there are many, uh, but the, the, the main advantage of uh, today's research is that uh, there are lots of microdata to shed light on issues that uh, were very important, but we just didn't know how to answer. And definitely just the innovation production function is something that we don't know very well. But innovation is so important, and we just kept talking about innovation in this podcast, but what is the exact production function? Uh, that I don't think we have a very good understanding of, yes, you know, in, in, indeed, if you look at those endogenous growth models, it's always taking a very simplistic approach. It says it's 100% uh, uh, inventors. And then we, you know, we have this model where we have a population and we magically split that population into two groups as assembly line workers and scientists. And then if you subsidize R&D, suddenly many of those assembly line workers the next day become uh, a scientist in the lab producing uh, patents and innovation. But obviously that's not how things work in real life. Think about our own life, right? We are spending years and years to learn about frontier knowledge, to learn about how to do research. And that shift doesn't happen overnight. But in, 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 in our models, we are taking this very simplistic, simplistic approach. And I don't think it's very innocent. So that's why, uh, of course, you have to cut corners when you do research. But what I'm trying to say is that if you think about our, our, our models that we use in the literature, yes, they are very uh, rich and they are very informative. But the very basic part of it, which is the R&D production function, 
is something that we skip very fast. And we typically think about market incentives for innovation, but when it comes to the production side of it, uh, and obviously, you know, it, it's nobody to be blamed about this because it was mostly because of the lack of data. But now that we have more data, probably we can make more progress on this because unless we really unpack that part of uh, uh, innovation production function, we might still be limited in terms of the right, in thinking about the right policies to unlock the innovation potential of, uh, of economy. So uh, one dimension on this, John and you know, I also spent quite a bit of time on this, has been on understanding human capital side of innovation. But that's just really, again, still a part of the equation. But just, just, to, just to elucidate on that, you know, the human capital, what you know, Ufik's saying, what he and, and I and many other people are looking at, is how people <laughs> become inventors or entrepreneurs. And that notion of you know, um, what makes somebody become an entrepreneur or become an inventor is, is, is quite a difficult and complex process. And it depends a lot on your family, and where you were brought up and the community that you lived in and where you went to school and a whole set of factors, economic, sociological factors, which really seem to be very important in, in, in driving who might become one of these new inventors in the future. And if you start thinking about that, then you also think about, well, there could be a lot of unlocked talent that we have in our societies that if there are many people who are, you know, could be very smart people who might end up being entrepreneurs but happen to be born in a poor family uh, or minority or women as opposed to men, you know, that's a, a potential, you know, unlocked talent which could actually increase the, the stock of inventors and, that we have in the country. Good for growth, but also good for equity as well because, you know, we're losing people that we could, poten could potentially change the future and would be good for, for equality as well. So that, you know, if you a policy like that, I think, could be something that, you know, in our very polarized world, all sides of the political spectrum could come together and say, this is a, something that we want to understand uh, intellectually and also use it to change the world. Yeah, and also you have like papers like uh, on history as well, right? For instance, you see that in the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, you see that inventors, they're actually fathers, grandfathers are actually innovators, and then uh, the children are actually more kind of, it's positively related to that kind of lineage. That's the beauty of research. I mean, uh, I, I feel very lucky, uh, and I'm sure you feel the same way. Something bothers you and we are able to go to the data and ask the question and learn the answer ourselves uh, looking into the data. And it was fascinating to see even in the beginning of the 20th century, education was extremely important for innovation. And at that time, it was college graduates uh, who, you know, being a college graduate had a very strong predictive power uh, of, of becoming an inventor. And today, it's more specialized. It's a PhD degree, is, uh, has a very strong predictive power. But if you think about it, it shouldn't be very surprising. At the end of the day, think about our own, you know, we are writing papers and it's also a type of innovation. And you can't do this just with, a, with just a, a high school diploma, right? We had to go through such detailed technical training and the same way in, in R&D labs, uh, the way scientists are doing their research, it's so technical, it's so sophisticated, they have to go through these very technical formal training. And suddenly, you know, once you realize this pattern in the data, 
education is very, very important and over time it's getting more and more and more specialized. Suddenly innovation policy is also getting tangled with education, especially higher education policy, right? And now rather than focusing on average years of schooling, probably we should be discussing the role of universities for research and economic growth. Again, you, you asked me earlier about uh, growth strategies or policies of different countries. And now I think normally middle income countries or any country should be talking about their education system, but in this technical terms, rather than trying to boost average years of schooling, we should probably think about these technical training in those countries and, and ask ourselves how much of our budget are we investing in uh, creating the workforce to create these scientific workforce to create new innovations. And that's again something that the policymakers don't uh, uh, bring up very much. And normally, without having strong universities, you can't have strong growth performance. But uh, again, this is something that's, that's, that's not di being discussed very much. But through these lines of research, I think these issues will become louder and louder and louder and eventually it, these things come with a delay. So first researchers put these facts on the table and then this is getting this is being discussed more and more and more and then the most important issues are rising up and then policymakers pick on this issue and then turn them into policy. So it comes with a lag and I, I see that this is a natural life cycle of, of policymaking but I think we are on a good trajectory in that regard. I hope that especially the young researchers who are listening to us hopefully can get motivated about these issues because there are so many unanswered uh, questions and they are so important. We are talking directly about how countries and individuals can uh, produce more, can uh, become richer and can be more, can live in more prosperous societies. And that can come only through economic growth and economic growth can only come uh, through technologies in the long run. And, and these are extremely important issues and hopefully we'll, the young researchers uh, will produce a lot more exciting uh, papers and research on which we can learn. So these are great points actually because, um, and, and since you also mentioned like who becomes an inventor, especially uh, like the minorities or even gender, like when you look at the 19th century, for instance, you see that actually 50% of the population is really out of question. Like they're, I mean, you don't see them as like innovators. Um, and over time, you know, there are laws related to like women's property rights, for instance, economic rights. And then you see that there is actually some rise in, in um, like innovation, like inventions, like among women. So the policies should actually be more inclusive about, you know, the minorities and gender equality to uncover those lost Einsteins or Marie Curies. Um, so um, I want to ask also about uh, the green innovation, because we talked about developing economies, developed economies, and now we see that there is actually a growing literature on green innovation. So I wanted to ask, um, can um, green innovation be in uh, be a field where PhD students can focus on? That's a very exciting area. Uh, global warming is, is a fact. Policy institutions are allocating a significant fraction of their budget towards policy interventions. But what's the best way of doing that? Right? That's, a, that's a very important policy question. So here we are talking about you know, how to make the, the industrial policy better, how to boost innovation in the most effective way. Uh, in manufacturing or in other uh, industries. Now there's a new field. And in this field, there's a lot of focus, there's a lot of attention, and the literature is very young. It's there now, but it's very young. 
And that's why I think it's one of the most exciting uh, research uh, areas to focus on. And I think the, the green transition is the poster child of creative destruction. Why? Because here we are talking about replacing an old fossil fuel technology that's everywhere with a brand new technologies, energy sources, and there are gigantic incumbents, gigantic incumbents in this market. And it's not only about firms, it's also countries. You know, there are many, many countries, uh, resource-rich countries, which are not uh, necessarily big uh, defenders of, of this change. Mm -hmm. So what are you going to do in this situation? Countries are also going through different stages of their development. Yes, you know, some countries are very rich and, you know, uh, they, they innovated immensely. But that's mostly, you know, thanks to their past emissions. And now, you know, there are some countries now rising, growing and, and rising up. Some policymakers are arguing that now it's their turn to emit uh, so that they can, they can also grow. How are you going to convince them? So how are you going to convince those policymakers saying that, look, yes, you know, uh, we, you know, we emitted in the, in the past, but you can't do it now. So obviously they will ask for compensation. What's the best way of doing that, you know, setting up that compensation? Should it be just a direct transfer, some financial transfer, or should it be a technology transfer, which can be more effective in the sense that because it's not only about changing the way they will produce, but it will also have additional spillovers around it. So if, for instance, engineers can be trained in those you know, developing countries, maybe advanced economies can now cooperate with the uh, developing countries and build some corporations where the, the, the green technologies can get diffused into those middle-income middle countries, uh, which are uh, uh, emitting quite a bit, but we need to we need to go through that transition as fast as possible, right? Currently, those countries are going through that transition and the speed of that transition is also a little bit up to the advanced economies. Because if they just let those uh, developing countries uh, by themselves and ask them not to emit, that's going to take a long time, as you can imagine. But there has to be some collaboration. And there, uh, again, political economy becomes an important issue. Game theory becomes a very important issue, right? And that's why I think it's a, you know, from a researcher point of view, I find that research agenda fascinating because they are so relevant. They are such big questions. And, uh, uh, and it's very hard indeed. It's in many fields, it's very hard to find uh, unexplored directions. But in economic growth and innovation literature, we never run out of ideas. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so that's why it's, it's, it's a very exciting field to work on. And one final question on uh, research. You're a professor at the University of Chicago and recently very influential macroeconomist Robert Lucas passed away and he was your colleague. And I was even like sometimes attending the seminars and I, I had a chance to see him. I mean, I didn't have a chance to meet with him, but I want to ask like, how do you think uh, he, his work influenced you uh, and your work or even our approach on economics of innovation or in general economics? Lucas was a giant. Lucas was a true giant. And uh, so I remember the first instances where I, you know, I, I realized the importance of his work was when I was a graduate student and I was attending a seminar. The presenter was uh, talking about his research and then at some point he said, 
similar to the Lucas model and I do blah 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 and then somebody from the audience asked which Lucas model? <laughs> there's, the, there's the Lucas critique, the Lucas orchards, the Lucas islands, <laughs> Lucas span of control, it's like incredible. Of, course, of course, of course, of course and now you know the, these learning models uh, you know recently that he worked on uh, until, until the, you know his last days he's, he's been contributing and uh, that's really something to, to, to admire uh, so, but maybe, you know, it became uh, too standard uh, for everybody to quote, but I very much live that quote uh, every day in my life, which is, you know, he said you know, a little bit of a rephrasing, but, you know, once you start thinking about economic growth, you can't think about anything else. It's so right. It's, it's so right that, you know, I'm, I, you know, I personally lose uh, sleep sometimes thinking about research ideas and just because you know, I'm feeling very excited about uh, 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 you know about the research that I do, and you mentioned uh, you know PhD students. My big advice to PhD students uh, is that they should always work on things that are really exciting them, and uh, if they don't feel convinced about what they do, and if they are really questioning what they do probably they are not working on the on the right topic or, or, or right field and that's totally okay. Uh, innovation is, is a process of exploration. It's an experimentation basically. It's a trial and error until you converge to the right thing. And I experienced this in my own uh, uh, life. Initially I was working on a you know, complete or at least I thought I would be working on a completely different field. It had nothing to do with economic growth. And then over time, I realized that indeed my my passion is really economic growth. And what was what was that you were working on? I was thinking more about labor issues. Okay. Actually. So <laughs> the, the very first topic that I I was thinking was uh, female labor force participation, which is extremely important. Over time, I came to that, but through inventors and in, <laughs> and uh, so that's why. Uh, so this 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 research uh, topic, finding the right research topic is definitely a journey and everybody should tolerate some failure. And mm -hmm. uh, sometimes, uh, you know, PhD students feel uh, stressed about, oh, you know, uh, I see all these successful people, maybe I'm failing by not working on a topic. No. Exactly. I, I was going to ask about that. And because like when you also look at our professors, uh, I mean, you can look at their prizes, awards, and I mean, I, I mean, it takes minutes, you know, to, <laughs> to count and to mention all those awards and prizes. And that makes you think, because then you start thinking of those people as like, oh, they're super hum like humans, and then they're probably working too hard and I'm not doing enough, leading to like lower level of, you know, self-confidence. So it's really actually a very destructive thing because then you just think that, I mean, you don't do enough and then, um, I mean, um, and then it goes into a very vicious cycle. You're, <laughs> you're, 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 you're again, a, a, a topic that deserves several podcasts, not one. <laughs> Uh, you know, a, a graduate student life and how to approach research, etc. And I'm more than happy to do it at, at an, an, another time. But just one thing that I should mention on this is that, yes, we see all these glorious CVs, but the CVs are containing the successes, not the failures. But that's totally okay. And indeed, uh, there's a very important lesson to be learned from that. What we care and the society makes progress uh, through 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 the successes, obviously, but 
there are also a lot of things to be learned from failures and failing is totally okay. Yes, you see one major publication by someone that there are at least 20 failures in the background that uh, you get to know once you start talking to that person. And that's why a very important lesson, and that, that's something that I tell uh, graduate students quite a bit, research is not done only in, in an office by yourself. A big chunk of research is learning from others' experience. So that's why, again, going back to the very beginning of the podcast, learning, bumping into others, learning from others' experience can get you so much. And, uh, uh, and a big chunk of, the, of, of research, especially at an early stage, is managing the psychology of it, right? So it's very easy to get depressed or, you know, to feel bad about your, your, yourself unless you learn the steps of becoming a researcher. Early on, there will be a lot of failures and that's totally okay. And whenever there's a failure, that sometimes is a huge plus and you get to appreciate it later on. But you should, you know, no, no researcher, young researcher should think in short term. They should always uh, think in longer term. And just like in many other professions, in our profession also the rewards are backloaded in the sense that there's a big asymmetric information. So there's a big informational asymmetry in the sense that there are a lot of researchers or, or a lot of people who are trying to become researchers. We just don't know who they are or what their ca capabilities are. So as a result, when you see a young researcher in front of you, you have no information about that person and through your interaction or through the, the output of that person, you're updating your belief about that person. And that's a normal procedure. You know, nobody should expect to be recognized at an early stage, but we should all just think about delivering consistently. Consistency is extremely important. You know, it's not like a, you know, one shot game. So in our profession, we have to keep delivering, we have to keep delivering. And at some point you, you, you will realize that indeed uh, people will retrospectively up, update the, their belief about someone's work and everything will, uh, so especially if somebody is doing something really radical, original work, it will take longer to be recognized. So that's why there's also this inverse correlation between on average, of course, on average, there's an inverse correlation between the quality of the work and also how long it will take uh, uh, to, to, to be appreciated. So that's why nobody should get stressed about, uh, you know, how people think about their work, etc. The researcher himself or herself should believe in the work at the first place, right? If you're not excited about your work, nobody will be excited about your work. You should be excited and then you should take your time to talk to people about your work, explain your work and try to convince people why they should be excited about uh, your work. And that will take time. But once it works, it's beautiful. Is there anything that you, um, this is, uh, I think, the final question. So is there anything that you wish you would have known, you know, when you started your career in the early years? Um, that obviously, there, are, uh, uh, there, are, there, there were many, many things. Uh, but all these things that I mentioned, especially towards the end of our, our podcast, uh, came with experience. And I should con uh, confess that I also went through those ups and downs uh, as a student. Indeed, I was going to go on the job market in year five. And uh, so I was trying to get 
access to some data and they didn't give me the data so then I, I tried to access that data through a third person so the arrangement was that I was going to write a do file and that person was going to run the do files and send me the results so it was it was a very strange setup that we were trying to build at that time and I didn't know about all this empirical work and it was the time when the empirical work in the growth literature ju was just picking up and uh, there weren't a lot of people uh, uh, to, to, to talk to at the time. And I tried to learn it a little bit my way. And uh, it was very, very challenging. And uh, suddenly, you know, after those back and forth with that person, after the results started to came in, and indeed that negotiation and that conversation took a long time, maybe six months or something, until I start to receive the first results. And I was thinking that I would go on the market in, 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 in year five. And then suddenly, once the results start to come, I realized that the results don't make any sense. <laughs> and there was clearly something wrong with the data. And I tried, tried, tried. And at some point, I really had to convince myself that I had to quit that project. Can you imagine? So it was going to be my job market paper. I built the model. I just needed the empirical results. And I didn't have the data. And through this third party, I was trying to get some results indirectly. And then suddenly you realize that uh, the results don't make sense. My whole world collapsed. And it was extremely hard to manage the, the, the psychology of it at the time. And yeah. uh, uh, obviously, you know, I had, I questioned my life. I, you know, I questioned, uh, you know, why, what I'm doing here, etc. But then uh, you say, look, it's a dynamic programming. We are, you know, we are where we are. What I can influence is the future, not the past. So then you re-optimize. And then I uh, uh, re-optimized and I, I found a, a new direction, new research question. And that's how I uh, proceeded. But one thing that I should tell you is that I always worked on topics that really excited me. And yes, in the short run, it was frictional uh, in terms of, you know, uh, getting the, the right angle and also <laughs> there are so many things that I would like to tell you about but every field has its own rules in the sense that that's how we make progress in science right every field has its own priority lists uh, because you can't answer everything and you can't do everything in every field so as a result we need to leave some things out and concentrate on other things. Think, think about, for instance, a, a macro production function. We have a Cobb-Douglas production function. A, K to the power alpha, L to the power one minus alpha. What do other macro uh, fields do? They focus in great detail on K and L, right? The labor literature focuses on L and the finance literature or other macro finance focuses on K and all the frictions there. What do they do? They take the process of A, the productivity exogenous. What do we do in the growth literature? We try to endogenize the process of A, right? Because they think that, you know, uh, that, that's not so first order. They are trying to focus on other things. What we, what we do is we focus on A, the process of A, and we simplify the rest by simply assuming that alpha is equal to zero. We know that alpha is not equal to zero, right? The whole macro literature says it's, it's 0.3, but we are assuming it's zero because we do not want to deal with all these other complications because we want to focus on the process of A. What I'm trying to say is that every field has its own accepted rules, not because we think that the world is working that way, 
but because we know that we we have to cut corners to make progress in a reasonable fashion but that comes with time you need some expertise you need to spend some time in the field until you learn what are the acceptable rules and what are not the acceptable rules what are the interesting questions that people will listen to what are the boring questions that means that everybody especially young researchers have to be patient until you come to that uh, uh, level where you you really see the big picture here the field or the profession is full of people who were impatient right they cut the cord uh, uh, very early on but young researchers should play the long game and be patient with their research and just focus on uh, questions that they feel passionate about and passion is contagious once they feel excited sufficiently excited about it trust me they will also convince the others to be excited about their research i just like to say thanks so much to ufuk for coming in and you know I, those of you who don't know ufuk ufuk is a amazing uh intellectual leader of the field of growth incredibly successful and productive but so it's really fascinating and great that he could be open about all the challenges that you know many young researchers face so, and i would totally endorse the the message that you know if you're a researcher the most important thing is that you know you love the question you're fascinated by the question researching it so that has to be the, the kind of number one priority don't just try and don't just try the incremental things really go for the big important questions that you you care about Thank you very much for accepting our invitation. Wish you the very best in everything, and I hope our listeners also enjoyed the talk. Um, we'll be quite active on Twitter, so if you have any questions or comments, please get in touch through Twitter uh, with us, and see you in the next episode. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.